You're listening to the City Church Downtown Podcast. Now here's Doug Robbins. Well, how are we feeling today, City Church? Feeling pretty good? Good time. So in case you're coming here for the first time, we've been in the midst of a teaching series about redemption. If you rewind a couple of weeks and you want to go back and listen to the podcast, uh, we said, my Azazel says all is well. And basically what we meant by that was that Jesus took upon himself on the cross our guilt, shame, pain and sins, and he carried away our guilt and shame, so we don't have to have guilt and shame uh, plaguing us today. But then last week we said, my Redeemer represents, and basically the idea there was that uh, Jesus represents us before God the Father to bring us into love relationship with God. And so today we're going to look at another facet of redemption. And for this, I need to take you to Liberia, Africa for just a minute. And there was this documentary film about Liberia, Africa um, called Pray the Devil Back to Hell. And it was basically about the brutal civil war that that country went through. And I was interested because our church has been involved in Liberia for about 10 years. And I was on my way there and I was really stoked to find out on my phone that this movie that I really wanted to see was going to play at the soccer stadium in Monrovia, the capital of Liberia, where I was flying into. So we get there, we're in the soccer stadium, the movie starts, I'm super excited. I see the Liberians like reacting to all that they saw on this film because they lived through all of this and about 10 minutes into the movie, they stopped the movie. And I'm kind of thinking, what's going on, dude? Because in these kind of countries, you know, stuff can get jacked up real fast, you know? So I'm thinking, what's going on? This motorcade of big SUVs enter into the soccer stadium. I'm thinking, who's in there? And out gets, guess who? The president of Liberia. Um, President Sarah she's a hero of mine because she was Ivy League trained here in the States, went back to her own country to serve as president and help them through uh, a really difficult time in their history. And she pulls out a chair, she sits down in the chair. And so we're all watching this documentary film with the president of Liberia there. They started the film over from the beginning so she could see the whole thing. This is a woman who knows how to make an entrance into the soccer stadium. Now, speaking of entrances, let me take you just a minute to uh, the AT&T Center a few years ago, back when we always anticipated the Spurs going deep into the playoffs. God, we're praying for those days to come back. We really want those days to come back. But I got to go to a playoff game because some friends invited me. I don't go to many games, but I got to go to that game. And those of you that have been to Spurs games know that the playoffs are like on another level of energy. And so the announcer gets on the PA and he starts announcing the players, right? And uh, before he announces the players, like the music is like thumping, you know, and their lights going everywhere and the coyotes running around wagging his tail, you know, uh, the silver dancers are shaking what their mamas gave them, you know, uh, and then the dude gets on the PA and he's all introducing the players, Tim Duncan, you know, he comes out of a you know, then uh, it's like Tony Parker, Manu, and everybody starts screaming, you know, everybody's excited because the Spurs know how to make an entrance, don't they? Let me give you one more. Um, Houston, U2's 
360 tour. Some of you remember that tour with the big claw that they would take with all the AV on it uh, and the lighting and everything. And so the band's walking up to the stage, you know, and everybody pulls out their camera phones, you know, they're, they're like taking pictures and video with their phones. And uh, then The Edge starts to play some awesome guitar riffs, you know, and Bono starts to bust out the power vocals and everybody's going crazy because U2 knows how to make a what? An entrance, see? So if you take these three experiences, you know, President Leaf, big deal to me. Uh, the Spurs, big deal to me. U2, pretty big deal to me. Their popularity, when you look at it, compared to the overall history of the world, is actually pretty small especially when you compare it to the most popular and famous person in all of history as we know it, and that would be Jesus Christ. He is the most important person in history, according to a new internet search program that ranks Napoleon number two and Muhammad number three. This software developed here in the U.S. scours the internet for uh, opinions expressed about famous people, and it uses a special algorithm to predict how important these people will remain even 200 years after they die. And according to multiple sources, Jesus Christ was seen as the most important person in all of human history. And so when you think about that and you think about entrances, let's see how Jesus enters the world in a little talk I call Redemption Makes an Entrance. Would you say that with me when I point to you, even those of you in the video cafe? Here we go. Ready? Redemption makes an entrance. Very good. Redemption makes an entrance. Now, uh, we're going to drill down in depth on one verse from the Bible that's a part of the Christmas story. And that verse is Matthew chapter 2. Look at verse 1 with me, if you will. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. So we're going to break up the talk in two sections. One section is how he was born in the town of Bethlehem, and the other section is during the reign of King Herod. Let's start there with during the reign of King Herod. And one of the things you got to understand about Herod is that he was given authority over Palestine and the region where Jesus was born by the Roman Empire. He was a brutal kind of guy. Uh, he was kind of like the alpha male in a region. He was barbarous. He was violent. And he was known for his large building projects. And so some biblical archaeologists think he may have looked something like this guy that you're about to see on the screen, okay? Um, okay, I'm a Cowboys fan. I can joke about that, right? Um, that's funny. I, I tell you, that is funny to compare Herod to um, Jerry Jones. Okay, I'm sorry. That was my bit of fun. But historically, there was a guy named Josephus that writes about Herod. And Josephus says that on the day that uh, Herod was in the process of dying, he was on his deathbed, he had them gather a group of beloved people from the region in the stadium in Jericho and gave an order that as soon as he died, all those beloved people were to be killed and executed so that there would be mourning on the day of Herod's death. Are you getting a feel for this guy? Um, he had two of his own sons drown in the palace swimming pool. He had his favorite son, uh, whose name was Antipater, 
executed. He had uh, hundreds of family and staff members at his palaces killed when he suspected them of plotting against him. So are you getting a feel? He's a very warm and fuzzy kind of guy, okay? Uh, you, you better be careful around this guy. Herod, he's best known for the massacre of a bunch of baby boys in Bethlehem during the time of Jesus' birth. Um, he was, at the time, the richest man in the world. He even had more wealth than the Caesar at the time. If you compare his wealth to that of Bill Gates today, he would by far be more wealthy than Bill Gates is considered in our economy today. One out of 10 people worked for Herod on one of his great building projects. So I want to show you three of Herod's homes. I've visited two of them in the Middle East. We'll start with Caesarea by the Sea. It's also called Caesarea Maritime. Um, I'll show you an artist's rendering of perhaps what it looked like back in the day when Herod built this entire development. He had a palace there. Um, he built this harbor. It's the most technologically advanced harbor in antiquity. Scholars are still speculating about how he was able to pour the concrete cement pillars for the big pillars that were out in the harbor where the ships would come in. Um, if you look at this second picture, um, I actually took this second picture at this site where his palace would have been back in the day. This is also the site where uh, Paul appealed to Caesar and ended up going to the Caesar to be executed some years later. Um, but Biblical Archaeology Review, which I know is a, a periodical that's in all of your coffee tables, um, but it says that uh, this area, Caesarea Maritime, was the Vegas at the Mediterranean. It was an entertainment center with theater, musical concerts, uh, chariot races, gladiator games, uh, animal shows, all sorts of stuff going on there. Um, I have tons of pictures of it, but I won't bore you with all my Holy Land pictures. But uh, uh, according to author Kenneth Holm, the architecture at Caesarea reflects the city's primary purpose to glorify Herod and Rome. So you, you get in a feel for this guy, Herod, he'll build a whole development. First of all, he named it Caesarea, like Caesarea, to kind of kiss up to the Caesar. But he also did it to give himself glory, to show how powerful and how much wealth that he had accumulated. Now, let me show you his next palace at a place called Masada. Um, Masada is... Uh, basically this palace that was built onto the side of a cliff. I'll show you what it perhaps looked like uh, with this artist's rendering. Uh, it's an amazing place. The citadel and palaces at Masada are a well-known place because scholars believe that perhaps King David may have taken refuge there at one time, um, but it's really more well-known for the time when the Romans invaded Israel and about a 1,000 Jewish patriots were hiding at Masada, um, kind of uh, waiting out the war there when the Romans surrounded them, and these Jewish patriots didn't want to be tortured, and they didn't want their families to be tortured by the Romans uh, who were surrounding them, so they committed suicide there. So it's a very tragic story. Um, but let me show you this next picture of Masada and the view here. I like this view because it's my lady. You know, I took a picture of her looking out over the top of Masada there. And you can see the Dead Sea uh, from there. Um, this place is way 
up there. In fact, in the next picture, you'll see a cable car that goes up there. And in our tour group, um, there were a group of the macho guys that wanted to climb the stairs up Masada. I'm more of a cable car guy myself, you know. I just wanted to chill in the 110 degree heat because it's, it's 1,300 feet above the Dead Sea. It's a beautiful view. Even today, it's got these beautiful frescoes in there that were created when Herod built this uh, amazing palace up there. One of the things that was impressive to me is that you think about how do you get water up there when you have a palace on the side of a cliff? And Herod had designed these aqueduct systems and ways to catch water and store water in these big cisterns so they would have water to drink and to use up there on the citadel of Masada. Um, So he was a man who loved power and money and a place with a view. But let me show you perhaps his most grand palace. It was named after him. It was called the Herodian. Some people called it Herod's Mountain for reasons I'll show you here uh, in just a minute. If you look at this next artist rendering, you'll see um, kind of what the Herodian looked like. And it looks like this kind of volcano shaped cone there. Uh, It's kind of near Bethlehem. And it's not really, uh, it wasn't really there before. I mean, there was no mountain there that he built on top of. Herod had his workers truck in, bring in, they didn't have trucks, right? But they like buckets full of uh, uh, a dirt to make this big mountain there. To give you a feel of the scale, the top is 350 feet across, more than 250 feet high. The base is over 1,000 feet wide. Let me show you uh, a picture of where the Herodian Hill is today and what it still looks like, even though you know it's deteriorated over the years. Um, but it was the base is over 1,000 feet wide, all carried in. All, all that dirt was carried in, mind you. All the people around would speak of Herod, who had the power to move mountains because he created a mountain where there wasn't one. So the lower parts, if you go back to the artist rendering, below the mountain there was a garden and the largest swimming pool ever found in antiquity. It was a soccer field both ways. There are gardens all around it. In the middle of the pool, there was an island there where he would boat out with power brokers of the day to have private conversations out on that island. Um, There was an indoor pool there. Um, At the top of the mountain, there was an eight-story round palace, more than 300 feet across, 475 feet high. So it was basically from the base of the hill to the top of his apartment uh, was like a 45-story building as tall as the Tower of the Americas or any building in downtown San Antonio. So are you getting a feel for how rich and powerful this guy was? His Herodian palace was actually five times bigger than the Caesar's palace during that day. Are you getting a feel for just how powerful and wealthy this guy, Herod, was? Yet three miles from his grandest palace, redemption would, be, would enter the world. Just three miles away, almost literally in the shadow of the Herodian, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a small little place, and there was a prophecy about 
Bethlehem. And I want to show it to you from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. The ancient prophet said, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small little village in Judea. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. And so all the Jewish people believed that Messiah would be born in this little place, Bethlehem. This is how redemption makes an entrance. In a little place called Bethlehem, look, the the Chamber of Commerce at Bethlehem couldn't brag to people that they have a river walk and theme parks in their town, okay? There was nothing there. And when Jesus would be born there, he would be born to, to an impoverished little teenage couple, you know? And they had him in a manger like a sheep barn with sheep dung on the floor and flies buzzing in the air. And look, Mary and Joseph didn't have like Obamacare with which to fund the birth. You know, they didn't have like a a PPO insurance plan and she didn't have an epidural, ladies, can you imagine, okay? Uh, She didn't have anything to numb the pain, uh, but it was in this humble environment that redemption makes an entrance, right? So um, it was an amazing place. And one of the interesting things about Jesus' life is that he wasn't born in a palace, He never lived in a palace. The Bible tells us that foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So Jesus was basically a couch surfer his entire life. This is how redemption enters the world, see. Um, And he was born in Bethlehem, which literally means the house of bread. Bread was the food of the common people, not just for the elites and the powerful and the rich. And bread fills our stomachs. Um, And Jesus is known as the bread of life, right? He came for us, the common folk. And as you compare the reign of Herod and the entrance of Jesus, let's look back in history and see whatever happened to Jesus and whatever happened to this guy, Herod. Well, if you look back at Herod, he died of kidney failure, venereal disease, gangrene of the gentles, in an itchy, agony torment of a death. And people were glad Herod died because of how barbarous he was. And the Roman Empire that he worked for collapsed over a period of years. And you know that uh, most people in history wouldn't even know who Herod was or is. unless his name was written in the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth, right? None of us here would even know who Caesar is, or rather who Herod was, if he wasn't in the Bible, in the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth. And whatever happened to Jesus? Well, Jesus lived a life of love and miracles, and he ended up dying on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins and for yours, and he rose again from the dead three days later, and it's not just a fairy tale, but it's recorded that eyewitnesses, hundreds of eyewitnesses saw him, both in Christian accounts as well as non-Christian accounts of history. And then he ascended into heaven, and 200 years after Herod had died, Christianity filled the Roman Empire to a point that today Rome is the headquarters of a Christian denomination because of the power of the movement of Jesus and um, the, the power to move mountains. And so I want you to think for just a minute as Jesus made his entrance in the shadow 
of Herod's power. You have Herods in your life right now too that overshadow you, do you not? Do you have a problem or an issue or something going on in your life that you feel like is too big for you to handle, too big for you to deal with, too powerful to be overcome? You know, this Christmas season, some of us are facing family divisions that have been going on for years, and we're faced with them during the Christmas time where we have to see certain family members and we think these things have gone on so long that there could never be peace in the family. That could be a Herod. For some of you, a Herod is the depression that's like a shadow cast over you over a period of time. For others, it's an addiction. Maybe others, it's the pain of a divorce that happened to you and your spouse or to your parents. Uh, Maybe it's unemployment or racism or the loss of a loved one. I mean, it's like a shadow over you, and this will be your first Christmas without them, or it will be your fifth Christmas without them, or your tenth, and the pain is still there because you wish they could be there opening presents, celebrating with the rest of the family, eating tamales and enjoying the love of family and good cheer. That's a Herod for you. But what I want you to see today is that Jesus one time took his young disciples to a mountain and he was teaching them from a mountain. Jesus loved the mountains. And from this particular mountain, you could see the Herodian mountain, the mountain that Herod built. But you could also see in the distance the ocean, the sea. And you know what Jesus said? He said, if you just have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, go into the sea and it will go. You know how Herod's mountain was made? One bucket of dirt at a time. And Jesus says, you don't have to solve it all today, but day by day. See, If you're facing your Herods right now, you don't have to solve it all today, but just carry one bucket of dirt today towards healing to overcome the powerful Herods that plague you in your life. All we have to do is get through today. Just carry one bucket of dirt today. And you know, all the characters in the Christmas story were people that were facing a literal powerful and brutal Herod that was trying to kill the baby Jesus, but they overcame their fear. Um, Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 9. Joseph and Mary were facing the fear of public disgrace because she was pregnant out of wedlock. But look at the next verse, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. It says, uh, Joseph is told, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, even though she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid. See, fear crept in again. And look at the next verse, Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 21. Uh, they're told, no need to what? Fear, because Jesus will save his people from their sins. And so Mary went from this little cowering, fearful girl to a young woman of courage. And you know why? Because I think one day it dawned on Mary, I'm pregnant with the king of kings. There is a king up in here. (laughs) Can you imagine? 
She knew it was Messiah. It's like, there is a king up in here, you know? And so this little girl copped an attitude, and she wrote this song, and you can see her spice and courage in the words of Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Look at it with me. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he took notice of his lowly servant girl, And from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He scattered the proud and haughty ones, Herod. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands, Herod. So in other words, there's a king up in here. I'm going to jack you up, Herod, because the Lord Jesus Christ, the king of kings is inside me. And look, what I want to tell you today is that if you have believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin, you can say with courage, There is a king up in here. Is there not? Is anybody on board with having a king up in here, right? It fills you with courage to face the Herods in your life. And so it's like depression, no big thing. There's a king up in here. Division in the family, no problem with me because there's a king up in here. No job, God's going to provide because there's a king up in here that owns the cattle on a thousand hills out there, right on? He can handle it all. And so check this out. We're celebrating baptism today. And baptism represents an entrance of redemption in your life. See? And your first step of courage, once you've received Christ into your life, once you get a king up in here, is to courageously come before other people and say, I've believed, I'm proud that I have a king inside me, and so I'm going to be baptized representing that I've died with Christ, and I'm raised to walk this new life. But unfortunately, not everybody is willing to be baptized. And so I'm going to challenge and encourage some of you in just a minute. For now, I'd like those of you that are registered to be baptized today to go ahead and come over here to the left of the stage. Go ahead and get up from where you are and come down to the front. I think we have uh, three or four people um, registered to be baptized today. Now, back to those of you that have believed in Christ but have never been baptized. Look at me just for a minute. I'm not trying to guilt and shame you or anything, but I want to ask you, Have you been baptized by immersion after you believe? Not when you were a baby, when it was your mom and dad's choice or when it was your grandma and grandpa's choice, but I'm talking about when it was your choice, when you really believe. Because we all know a lot of people who get baptized as infants, they weren't buying into it. And later on, they just go off and do their own thing and don't care about God. But have you been baptized after you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin? And some who are honest with themselves say the reason that I've never been baptized by immersion is because I just feel weird about going up in front of other people. You know what we call that? We call it fear. Are you afraid? Or are you ashamed to come up and proclaim that there's a king inside you? 
The king brings courage inside of you. There's nothing to fear. You don't have to fear what other people think of you. You say, no, I'm bold about it. There's a king up in here. You don't have to fear anything or anybody. And so I want to gently encourage you to get up. If you've never been baptized after you believe by immersion, go to the lobby. They have clothes there. There's nothing to fear. They're not going to make you wear a Speedo or anything weird like that. You know, got regular clothes back in there. Could we all just say those words? There's a king up in here together. When I point to you, ready? There's a king up in here. And so look, again, I'm not trying to push you too hard. But man, are we ashamed of the one who was willing to be born like in a sheep pen and lived a life of couch surfing? Are we ashamed of the one who was willing to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins? Who came to us to bring us eternal life forever? Why would we be ashamed of that guy? The guy that overcame the entire Roman Empire. The guy that left Herod in the dust. The guy that has the power of life and death. The keys to Hades. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And when we come to him, it's like there is the most powerful being in the universe up in here now. And I am not ashamed and I am not afraid of anybody but I'm going to proclaim through this multi-sensory experience called baptism that there is a king up in here. So as the band plays, as we worship, as these are baptized, get up from your seat, go back there and get registered and close to, to be baptized today because you know that one of these days is none of these days unless you pick a day and today is the day of salvation. See? So let's worship together as we enjoy baptism together. Jesus, we thank you that you have brought this great hope into our hearts along with courage and the fruit of the Spirit. And we thank you for the many throughout the services today who have wanted to proclaim you through baptism. And we pray that this would be like a gift to you because you already own all the possessions in the universe, but what you're after are the hearts of people. And so that's what we offer you today is our hearts and those of others who would come to believe. We thank you for what you're doing in our church, and we consider it a privilege and an honor to gaze upon your grace in action as we see people submitting their lives before you as the Lord of all. And we thank you that there's a king up inside us. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Everyone said, amen, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit citychurchdowntown.com.